If you would please uh, take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 19. As we continue in the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. So the uh, last verses there of John chapter 19. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, we've seen the manner already in which uh, John records the, the death of Christ. He records it from the standpoint of one who was there. He saw it. He, as he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was standing near the cross. And we've also seen how he has been deliberately pointing out how the scripture was fulfilled in the death of Jesus. And as we look at these verses this morning, we'll see more of the same, more of John's eyewitness testimony. And he provides us some additional detail here that is not found in the other gospels, a detail that accompanies the death of Christ and is also itself a fulfillment of Scripture, that Jesus was pierced with a spear and that his bones were not broken. We also see the burial of Jesus here in the end of the chapter. And so as we consider these verses, we'll do so under, under three main headings. First, Jesus was pierced. Secondly, Jesus was buried. And thirdly, the death and burial of Jesus calls for your death and burial. Jesus was pierced. Jesus was buried. Jesus' death and burial calls for your death and burial. And so first of all, Jesus was pierced. And working through the history of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, we have already considered how both John and the other gospel writers agree in their testimony that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. The fact 
that the Jews back in chapter 18, verse 28, had desired to eat the Passover and therefore stayed out of Pilate's praetorium so that they might remain clean was done not out of a desire to eat the Passover lamb because they had presumably done that the night before. Their desire to remain clean was so that they might continue to eat of the the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was unfolding that week, and particularly uh, probably the Kagiga, which was to have taken place on Friday. John's reference to the preparation for the Passover in chapter 19, verse 14, it's not to be taken as a reference to the preparation for the Passover lamb, but rather for the preparation for the Sabbath of the Passover. The, The gospel writers speak of the day that Jesus was crucified as, as the preparation day, and meaning preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. And when John calls it the preparation for the Passover, he means the preparation before the Sabbath on the Passover week. And these observations that we have already made are only confirmed by what we find here in the latter portion of chapter 19. We find again in verse 31 that John says that it was the day of preparation. Again, they're preparing for the Sabbath. And John notes that this was a particularly high Sabbath. This was the Passover Sabbath, and it was reportedly the Sabbath upon which the people were to present themselves at the temple and uh, bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the crops and offer them up. And so this, this was a big day. And so the Jews did not want the bodies of these dead men or these dying men left on the crosses. And this was not simply a matter of aesthetics. We might think, oh, Man, how gross would that be to have some dead or dying people up on poles, up on crosses? But this was actually a matter of the law. And so Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, we're told this, that if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang out all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And this is why the Jews took the burial of the dead very seriously. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Jews are so careful about funeral rites that even malefactors who have been sentenced to crucifixion are taken down and buried before sunset. And so this Jewish propensity for burying the dead, even for burying crucified criminals on the same day as the crucifixion, was not simply a superstition or simply a custom, but rather this was, this was based on the Old Testament law. Now, in contrast, the Roman practice was to leave the bodies of the crucified on their crosses until they decomposed or until they were eaten by birds. This was to serve, as it were, as a warning to other would-be criminals. It could take potentially days for someone to die on a cross and then more time after that for the body to decompose or be eaten by birds. So these Jewish leaders here in our account had wanted to get the crucifixion to take place that day, to get Jesus crucified on Friday, and now they wanted it done with. They wanted to get those dead men's bodies, or those dying men's bodies, off the cross. And so to expedite the process, they asked that their legs might be broken, and then that their bodies might be taken away. The breaking of the legs would be carried out probably with an iron bar or a mallet, smashing the legs until they were broken. And this had the function then that they would no longer be able to push themselves up on the cross in the position of crucifixion so as to take a breath. And being no longer able to breathe, they're no longer able to keep their their chest cavity open, their arms would soon wear out from pulling themselves up. 
and suffocation would then follow. Hence, the breaking of the legs of a crucified man who was still living at that point would, would expedite his death. He would, he would die more quickly if his legs were broken. And so the soldiers here break the legs of the two criminals who were crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. He had already given up his life, as we saw last week back in uh, verse 30. He had given up his spirit. And so he was pierced in his side with a spear, and it brought forth, John tells us, a flow of blood and water. Now John puts his own stamp on the, the veracity and the truthfulness of these events in verse 35. He's the eyewitness who saw this. He saw the blood and water come out of Jesus' side. He saw it. He testified to it. He's telling the truth, and he knows he is. And he says that he has written this for you, written this for me, so that we may believe, so that we may believe that Jesus really died on the cross for our sins. And, as we'll see in the next chapter, so that we may believe that he was gloriously raised from the dead for our justification. John saw and testified so that you might believe. So that you might believe this truth about Christ, so that you might place your trust in him and rely completely on the death of Christ to save you from your sins. These things are written, as John will tell us in chapter 20, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You pass from death to life through faith in Jesus. So will you do so? Will you believe the testimony of the apostle? Will you trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins today? John wrote these things so that you and I would do that very thing. And I would join in John in calling you to do that very thing. To believe in Jesus and be saved. If you have more questions about this, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to believe in Jesus. Now, there are all kinds of theories as to what exactly was happening here medically and physiologically that resulted in this flow of blood and water from the body of Jesus. And from what I've been able to gather, none of those theories is an absolute dead ringer in the sense that this is clearly what was going on physiologically and medically when Jesus' side was pierced with the sword. And so we'll bypass any discussion of physiology in this regard, but what we will do is we'll think about theology. What was John's point in mentioning this blood and water coming out of the side of Jesus? And why did he go to the lengths that he did in verse 35 to give his personal stamp on the truthfulness of these events? Well, for one thing, John wanted to be crystal clear about the fact that Jesus was truly a man and that he truly died on the cross. Now, John wrote his gospel after the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had already been written. And being at a later date, John may well have been addressing a current of thought which had begun to rear its head in the latter part of the first century. And one of those beliefs that reared its head before the apostle John died was a heretical belief that is known as docetism. And it is the heresy that teaches that Jesus was not really a man, but that he only appeared to be a man. He only seemed to be a man. And we know that John dealt with this kind of false teaching because of what we find in the letters of First and Second John. And so, for instance, First John 4.2, he writes, Every spirit 
that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So John is dealing with people who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. And if you think back to the opening verses of the, uh, the letter of 1 John, John kind of gets at this right out of the gate when he, he talks about what we, have, what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have handled concerning the word of life. John's very upfront about the humanity and uh, the fact that Jesus was a really a man. Or Second John verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And so John deals with explicitly those who reject the humanity of Christ in his letters, and it's possible that even in writing his gospel, he has his sights set on some of them by pointing out that when the side of Jesus was pierced, there came out a flow of blood and water, that Jesus was really a man, that Jesus really died. And secondly, there may be some significance to the fact of the substances that flowed out, substances of blood and water. John ties the two together. First John 5, 6, when he says that this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and blood. In the Old Testament economy, blood signified atonement, being made for the forgiveness of sin. The wrath of God against sin requires death, and the wages of sin is death. And also in the Old Testament economy, Water signified cleansing. If you've been with us at all in our series in the book of Leviticus on Sunday evenings, we have, we've seen some of this. The washing with water that purifies from uncleanness. And that which was signified in the Old Testament, water and blood, has its true fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The blood of bulls and goats can't actually take away sins. They're simply pointing forward to Christ. And while all of those washings with water may have outwardly cleansed the flesh, the only benefit, uh, they, only the, the benefit which flows from Christ can truly cleanse our hearts and our souls. It is perhaps also significant that the rock which accompanied Israel in the wilderness was Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4. And when that rock was struck, Water flowed out for the benefit of Israel. Blood and water flowed out there on Calvary for the benefit of all who believe. Now John tells us in verses 36 and 37 that this episode concerning the the piercing of Jesus' side and that the fact that his legs were not broken took place to fulfill the scriptures. First he directs our attention to Exodus 12.46 where we read, "...not a bone of him shall be broken." And indeed, as we find in Numbers 9, verse 12, the regulation for the celebration of the Passover, we read this, They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. This was the rule for the Passover lamb. No bone of that lamb was to be broken. The the Passover event was a type or a, a picture of our salvation. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb was was put on the doors of the house of the Israelites in Egypt and caused the judgment of God to pass over those households who were under its blood. Even so, the judgment of God passes over all those who are, as it were, under the blood of Christ. The Passover in Egypt was a small picture of what was coming. The judgment that was demonstrated upon the Egyptians, terrible as it was, 
was just a small picture of the judgment of God, which will one day be poured out on the entire world. And the mercy of God, which was shown to the Israelites, great and real as that was, was only a small picture of the great mercy, which would one day yet be poured out when he to whom the Passover pointed was to be slain. All who take refuge under the blood of Christ receive not simply a physical deliverance as in the Passover of old, but rather an eternal deliverance through the forgiveness of sins. And thus Jesus is our Passover lamb. As Paul says this explicitly, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Indeed, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. And our Jesus did that when he offered himself up once for all, unblemished to God. Just as the lamb of the Passover was required to be an unblemished male, even such was our Lord Jesus Christ. He was both truly righteous and yet at the same time also true God. He was the seed of the woman who was tempted in all things as we are, yet was without sin. And yet he's also the eternal word who was God and was with God in the beginning. In order for Jesus to be our Savior, he had to be both God and man. And so we read in Hebrews 2.17 that he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be like us in order to die in our place. He had to be like us to be a mediator, to be a priest for us. But at the same time, he had to be God. Because no mere creature can bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And so we read in Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. The Savior that we require must be almighty in order to suffer for us and to take our sins away and grant his righteousness to us. And such is our Jesus, true God and true man, the holy son of David, the unblemished lamb of God. This Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us, and all who take refuge under his blood are delivered from the judgment to come. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment has been taken away, and we're received into fellowship with God. So we find in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John tells us that these things are the fulfillment also of another scripture, which is Zechariah 12, 10. They shall look on him whom they pierced. Zechariah 12, 10 is a prophecy of Christ. And this is what we find there in in that verse. The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now the weeping there that Zechariah describes seems to be A weeping of of true repentance and contrition. Recognizing, people recognizing that their sins had brought about the piercing of the only begotten Son of God. We learn there in Zechariah that they will look on the one whom they pierced. And John 
tells us here why Jesus is described that way. Because he was pierced. They came to break his legs, but they found that he was already dead. So they pierced his side with a spear. Therefore, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Jesus fulfilled the scripture in his death and even after his death as well. Now this brings us secondly to our second point that Jesus was buried. We find the details there in verses 38 through 42. We read there of how Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, asked for Jesus' body, and then proceeded to bury the body of our Lord. Now we never read about Joseph of Arimathea outside the accounts in the four Gospels where we read about him going to Pilate, taking the body of Jesus, and burying him. This is, this is the only time Joseph of Arimathea explicitly shows up in the narrative of Scripture. And so, obviously, the information that we have about him is going to be very limited. But, with that said, the small amount of information that the Gospel writers provide, if we take all of that and put it together, there's a rather fascinating picture of this man that emerges. This town, Arimathea, may have been the town also known as Rama which was the former home of Samuel back in the Old Testament times, which is nearly 20 miles or so northwest of Jerusalem. John tells us here that he was a disciple of Jesus, albeit a secret one because he feared the Jews. He probably feared being put out of the synagogue for acknowledging that Jesus was the Christ. Now, we can at least understand his fear, even if we cannot approve of it. His, that is, we can understand his wanting to be secret about following Jesus, we can't exactly approve of that. The other gospel writers fill in the picture a bit more for us. Mark tells us that he was a prominent member of the council, that is, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke describes him as a good and righteous man who had not consented to the plan and action of the Sanhedrin in delivering Jesus over to death. In other words, this man is a godly Jewish leader. Despite the fact that the Sanhedrin as a body had condemned Jesus and had delivered him over to be crucified, there was this godly man, Joseph of Arimathea, among them who did not consent to their actions that night. He was a follower of Jesus. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. But he was also very reserved about going public with the fact that he was a follower of Jesus. But now, now, after the death of Jesus... Despite all of the confusion, all the uncertainty, and whatever flood of emotions may have been rushing through his soul, despite the target that might be painted on his back, he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. It must have taken some guts to do that. Mark tells us, Mark 15, 43, that he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. As a general rule, you don't gather up your courage to do something that's that's easy and that is not going to get you in hot water. But he'd been a secret disciple before this, but now, at this moment, he gathers up his courage, goes to Pilate, and asks for the body. And so it's interesting that at the very moment when all hope seemed to be gone with regard to Jesus, this man, Joseph, stepped up to the plate, gets up his courage, goes forward as a friend of Jesus to ask for Jesus' body so that he might give Jesus a proper burial. And despite the fact that he had kept his discipleship a secret out of fear of the Jews, he goes to Pilate, receives permission to get the body, and gets Jesus buried before sundown. 
Pilate granted him permission. He took the body down, wrapped it in linen cloth that he had bought. And in doing so, he had firsthand contact with the dead body of Jesus. And then John tells us that our old friend Nicodemus showed up and helped him. Nicodemus had first come to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, and he uh, wanted to know about Jesus. He had some questions, didn't quite, didn't quite get it. He knew that nobody could do the kind of things that Jesus was doing. Nobody could say the kind of things that Jesus was saying unless there was something going on with Jesus that was not normal. And Jesus had that discussion with him about being born again. It said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus couldn't quite understand that. Nicodemus showed up again in the Gospel of John at the end of John chapter 7. And he asked for Jesus to receive due process under the Jewish law. The Jewish leaders had been uh, talking amongst themselves and wanting to, uh, to do bad things to Jesus. And Nicodemus just says, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? But now he shows up again, the third time, doing a kind deed toward the body of Jesus. And in doing it, in conjunction with another Jewish leader who had been a secret follower of Jesus. The moment of tragedy brings these two men out of the shadows and into the light, as it were. Calvin went so far as to say, here we have a striking proof that his death was more quickening than his life. And so great was the efficacy of that sweet savor which the death of Christ conveyed to the minds of these two men that it quickly extinguished all the passions belonging to the flesh. So long as ambition and the love of money reigned in them, the grace of Christ had no charms for them. But now they begin to disrelish the whole world. The example of these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, shows us that sometimes, by the grace of God, those who come short through fear, through ignorance, will at last come forward as decided followers of Jesus. This reminds us that we need to be quick not to just write people off just because we don't see spiritual fruit in their lives right now. Sometimes that fruit is slow in coming, but when it finally does come, it's plain for all to see. And so the point is, let's not give up on evangelizing, loving, and praying for those in whom we see no evidence of spiritual fruit or spiritual awakening in any way. The Lord may be working on their hearts in ways that we cannot see. So let's just remain faithful to the Lord, faithful in also loving them. And then in verses 41 and 42, we see that Jesus was actually buried. The Sabbath is near, and so Joseph and Nicodemus had their work cut out for them to get Jesus' body down from the cross, get the body prepared for burial, and then actually placed into the tomb before sundown that day. And so this garden tomb is nearby. It's a new tomb. Nobody's ever been laid there. And it's quite convenient to help them out under the circumstances. And so they buried Jesus there. Now, though we may not normally think in these terms, the burial of Jesus is actually an integral part of the Christian faith. We think much on the death of Jesus. We think much of his resurrection, as we should. But we should not forget and especially now that we're here in the Gospel of John, let us not forget the burial of Jesus. As we read earlier this morning, Paul includes the burial of Jesus among those things that are of first importance. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This also is an important aspect in God's plan of salvation. It was prophesied literally in Isaiah 53, 9, where we read of the servant of the Lord that his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The burial of Jesus was also prophesied figuratively in the life of Jonah. Our brother Jim read for us Jonah chapter 1 earlier this morning. Jonah 1.17 says, Jonah was, in the belly, or Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And of course, Jesus picks up on this and applies this to himself as a type and a shadow. Matthew 12.40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is an important part of the plan of salvation. It had been prophesied both literally and figuratively in the Old Testament. This is an important part of the plan. Question 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, Why was he buried? And the answer given is to show thereby that he was really dead. Jesus was really and truly dead. And his burial testifies to us concerning this fact. And so when we read these gospel accounts of Jesus' burial, let's not simply view them as gratuitous historical material, but rather let us see it as something that is an integral part of the Christian faith, verifying that Jesus was truly dead. Now this brings us then to our third point for this morning, which is Jesus' death and burial calls for your death and burial. And what I mean is this, that the New Testament is always continually directing us back to the cross, back to the death of Christ, back to his burial, back to Christ's resurrection. Not simply to call our attention to these historical facts, but also, and also, how the, these facts are a part of our salvation but they also call our attention to the implication of those facts for us personally as believers. So just, just listen to the way the New Testament speaks. This is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is Colossians 2.20 and 21. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as though you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is Romans 6.3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. This is Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now the point in all of this should be clear. The believers are united with Christ in his crucifixion, we're united with Christ in his death, we're united with Christ in his burial, we're united with Christ in his resurrection. This means that the death and burial of Jesus have implications for us. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The death of Jesus calls us to stop living for ourselves and to start living for Jesus. Living for Jesus means being united with him in his death, burial, 
and resurrection. This means that we are to die to ourselves, that we are to die to our sins, that we are to die to the ways of the world, we are to die to our former way of life, that we are to turn away from those things and continually seek the aid of the Holy Spirit, that we may put to death our sinful tendencies and inclinations. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. He said, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, when Peter says there, arm yourselves with the same purpose, what he means is that we should recognize that as those who are united to Christ in his suffering and in his death, we are those who have died to sin, or as he puts it, we are those who have ceased from sin. Now, certainly, it doesn't mean that we have perfectly ceased from sin, but it does mean that there is an objective dying to sin when we are united to Christ by faith so that we no longer live our lives We no longer spend our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but rather now for the will of God. And Paul is getting at the same thing in Romans 6, 5 through 7, when he says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin, For he who has died is freed from sin. So the point is, is that the death of Christ calls for your own death, that you are to die to yourself, that you are to die to your sins. The burial of Christ calls for your own burial, an entrance into the symbolic grave by baptism, the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace that is given to us by Christ. Baptism is a sign that we have died to our sins and that we've been raised again to newness of life through the grace of of the Lord Jesus. So allow me to ask you this morning, how are you doing with the dying? It may be that some of you here this morning have never yet, in any sense whatsoever, died to your sins. This is because you've never trusted in Christ. You've never repented or turned away from your sins. Far from having died to your sins, you are actively living in them, actively pursuing them, actively indulging in them, actively celebrating them. That's not good. The end of those things is death. If you don't die to your sins, your sins will kill you and kill you eternally. You need to turn away from these things and find forgiveness before you die in your sins. In declaring to you today the death of Jesus for sinners, I am announcing to you that the death of Jesus And that alone is sufficient for you. The death of Jesus is sufficient to take away all of your sins, whatever they may be. And in the preaching of the gospel, Christ calls you, Christ commands you to believe upon him. He calls you to repent, to turn away from your sins. He calls you to die to your sins. And be sure of this, that if you do not die to your sins through repentance and faith in Christ, you will die in your sins and you will perish eternally on account of your sins in the second death in hell. But Jesus, thank God, died to take the penalty that sinners deserve. So will you trust in him? Will you die to your sins? Now it may be that some of you are here this morning, and you have died to your sins. You have repented and believed, but you've never been buried, so to speak. You've never been baptized. 
If that is the case with you, I would encourage you to talk to one of the elders about baptism. It's important to understand the act of baptism does not make someone die to their sins. It does not make someone a new creature in Christ. Any more than Jesus' burial made him die. Jesus was already dead when he went into the grave. But his burial was, in a sense, a formal proclamation of his death. You can think of it as like a death certificate, certifying that he had died. Again, to borrow the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, his burial shows us that he was really dead. And it should be the same way with Christian baptism. Baptism is supposed to mark out those who have repented and believed in Christ. It is supposed to be the mark of those who have died to their sins because they have been united to Christ by faith. Baptism is a line of demarcation between the church and the world. And I would encourage you to talk to the elders. If you have died with Christ through faith, if you've trusted in him, but have never been outwardly and formally identified with Christ in the sign of his death in baptism. Now, it may be that some of you, objectively speaking, have died to your sins. You have repented and believed, and you have been buried with Christ through baptism. But instead of living as those who have died to sin and been raised to walk in newness of life, in Jesus Christ, instead of that, you're beginning to live maybe as if you hadn't actually died to your sins. And so if that's you, allow this passage from the Gospel of John concerning the death and burial of Jesus be a reminder to you that you must not. You must not continue living that way. Jesus died for you, not so that you could live however you want to live, but he died for you so that you would live for him. Be reminded this morning that as a Christian, you're under a continual obligation to put your sins to death and to live as a new creature in Christ that God has made you to be. Jesus died not only so that you could be forgiven, but also so that you would live for him. And so repent of your sins and believe the gospel. The gospel message is still good news even for you if you find yourself in that unfortunate condition. The gospel is still good news. Believe in Christ. Turn from sin. Walk with him even today. And it may be that some of you are here this morning and that you have died to your sins, you have been buried, and you are continually seeking to put the sins that you see in your life to death. You're seeking help and strength from God. You're going on from strength to strength and from faith to faith, being transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory. Obviously, you don't do this perfectly and flawlessly, but nevertheless, you do it faithfully. You're continuing to turn from sin and to resist temptation to the best of your ability and to submit yourself to God. And when sin does rear its ugly head in your life, you say with the prophet Micah, as he says in Micah 7, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. And you're continually returning to the cross of Christ and finding there that sins are forgiven on account of his name. Finding that the certificate of debt which was against you and was hostile to you is taken away once for all and has been nailed to the cross and has expired with Christ's death. You're continually drawing fresh strength from the Holy Spirit so as to continue dying to sin and living to God through Christ. Maybe that's a description of some of you. If so, may God be praised. If so, keep on going. 
If so, keep on looking to Christ, who is our righteousness. Keep looking to the one who was pierced for you. Look upon the one who was pierced, the true Passover whose bones were not broken. Keep looking to him, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Let's face it, that's part of the Christian life, isn't it? It's the temptation to grow weary, the temptation to lose heart. But the writer to the Hebrews bids us to look to Christ, consider him, consider the opposition he faced, so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. Think about Jesus and all the opposition that he faced when you're tempted to give up. Consider him and keep on going. May God give you strength. There was an old book from hundreds of years ago that was laid out in question and answer form, kind of like a catechism or kind of like a Wednesday night Bible study that that we do here. And one of the questions in that book was this. What comfort have you by Christ's death, burial, and lying under the power of death? And the answer to that question in the book was given in three parts. Number one, I am comforted because my sins are fully discharged in his death and so buried that they shall never come into remembrance. Point two, my comfort is the more, because by virtue of his death and burial, sin shall be killed in me and buried, so that henceforth it shall have no power to reign in me. And thirdly, I need not fear death, seeing that sin, which is the sting of death, was taken away by the death of Christ, and now death is made unto me an entrance into life. All praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was pierced for us, buried for us, and gloriously raised again from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Christ, for the new life that is found in him. We ask, Lord, that you would would strengthen us, that as we are baptized into the death of Christ, our Savior, that so by continually putting to death our sins, we may be continually buried with him, and that through the grave, the gate of death, we may pass to our joyful resurrection on account of Christ's merits, who died and was buried and rose again for us. We give you praise and we give you thanks. We ask for your help. We would follow you, that we would live for Christ, who died and rose again for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.